Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. My name is Matthew Tilley, and I'm the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist, and we're glad that you've joined us for this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org. We're in Judges, Judges chapter 6. Uh, we'll be in, the, towards the end, about verse 33 is where we'll pick up the story. Um, I've enjoyed, I'm enjoying, I should say, it's not over yet, um, I'm enjoying this uh, time in Gideon's life. I enjoy studying his life. It's just an interesting story. I hope I'm conveying my own interest in it. hope it's interesting to you. Um, and as we go along, I try to make some application of the story to us, um, because I believe that's the reason it was given to us for our edification. But uh, I find it to be just a fascinating story, so I hope you'll, you'll find it as well. You'll remember where we are in the story now. God has already approached Gideon. He says, I want you, Gideon, to save your people. Now, the people were in bondage or in slavery or under the oppressive rule of the Midianite army. They, they're, they're under their rule. And God has come to Gideon and says, I choose you to be the man who's going to lead these people out of here. Of course, Gideon says, I can't do it. You picked the wrong fella. And God says, don't worry, I'll be right there with you. I'm going to do this. Gideon, of course, finally agrees to do this. And once he agrees to do this, then God gives him a mission. The first job, he says, before you can ever get on the battlefield, you've got to get your heart right. And he spends some time with him to cut down that, that um, altar to Baal. You'll remember that from a couple weeks ago. But he cuts down that altar to Baal. And then, of course, the, the, the people of Manasseh, they want to kill him at first. <laughs> but God changes their heart. And now that's where we pick up the story. Right after that, that big incident, that big scene where there's a, there's a, there, everybody's ready to, to, to string him up, Gideon up, but God changes their mind, changes their heart. Then we pick up the story in verse 33. So before we get into this, I want to begin by word, word of prayer, and then I want to give you some thoughts from this passage in verse 33. Let's pray together. Lord, I need your help as I preach. I pray that I can convey the truth here. I pray that you will, your Holy Spirit will convict us of the application that is necessary for individuals. But Lord, you know my mind right now is on this corporate body and the church and how I believe that this applies to us. And I pray, Lord, that if that is a true application, that you will help me to bring it to bear and that you'll have your people to take it seriously. And we pray this in Jesus' name. I believe, we'll get into the passage in just a moment, but just to give you a setup for this, I believe that God will build his church. This is in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, I will build my church. I believe that. I believe what Jesus said, that the gates of hell will not stand against his church. I believe that there are forces who would, if they had their druthers, they would take down anything that worships God and lifts Jesus up. I believe their forces right now, they may never put it in those terms, but if they had their druthers, they would rather you not be sitting here listening to a preaching. They would rather you not be living in your communities, going out and sharing the, the good news of Jesus. They would rather you not do that. But I believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. I also believe that Matthew chapter 28, y'all know it as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Do y'all know that passage? Go ye therefore and, and, and teach all nations. You know that passage? I believe it is a command, yes, 
But if you actually go back and read it, it's Jesus as much as anything is giving a prophecy. And you know when Jesus prophesies something, it comes true. So he's actually saying in that passage, yes, it's a command to us, I understand that, but he's actually saying to us, this is what y'all are going to do. You're actually going to go out there. It's been said before, you know, if you could do anything and know you wouldn't fail, what would you do? Well, I don't know what I might do, but I can tell you that when we come out the commission, the Great Commission, it's a commission given that we can't fail at. We just need to go do it. If we could ever, the only failure is going to be not getting on the battlefield and doing the work. And I believe that God wants people saved. I believe God is, in fact, saving people as we speak. You may say, well, I ain't seen too many saved around here. Well, one, we did get somebody saved here on Monday night, so we can't say that much. Jacob Sakowitz, thank the Lord for that. That little boy came to Christ. But you may say, well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of people saved. Well, God's saving people. I don't believe he's ever stopped saving people. He may not be doing it around you, but that doesn't mean he's done doing it. He's continuing to save. And I believe he wants to use not just the church. He does want to use the church in the broadest sense of that. I believe he wants to use this church, McConnell Road Baptist Church. I believe he wants us to evangelize our community, to disciple those that God brings to our church. I think he has that as our purpose. In fact, I believe that is the very purpose that we exist. I don't think we exist to give Matthew Tilly a place to preach. I don't think we exist to have, give you a place to sing in the choir or to sit on the pew. That's not why we exist. We exist to help one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to help each other uh, to see Christ. And these are not things that I dreamed up. These are things that are ground in the very person, the character, the word of God. But here's where I come down to what Gideon's facing. My faith's kind of weak. I hate to admit that to you. I wish I could stand up here and show you all the wonderful things that I have. My faith is so strong. and I wish I had stories to tell you, but I don't have those. My faith is kind of weak. My faith is kind of wavering. I mean, it's so wavering and so weak. Uh, Y'all remember, I was uh, seeing Tammy back there remind me, remember when we had that um, uh, trunk or treat and we had all them people come and I, I, just, I just knew we weren't going to have nobody. And I remember Tammy specifically telling me, say, you need to have more faith than that. And she's right. She's right. And I could go and tell you about 10 other stories just like that because my faith is not strong enough. And I'm telling you, partly confess to that to you, but I want y'all to be thinking about your own self. I can imagine your faith even if your faith, you say, well, I'm pretty strong in my faith. Let me just go ahead and tell you, y'all's faith ain't big enough. Your faith is not big enough. I think your faith, we don't think a lot, much, much past the end of our nose. Now, I got a pretty good sized nose, so I got a little more faith than maybe some of y'all. But we, ain't got, we can't think much past the end of our nose on our own faith. It's not big enough. We're double-minded. We're unstable, James says. I think sometimes we even struggle just keeping unity among ourselves. And I'm just, being, I'm just trying to assess the reality of, our, of the situation. We're human beings. You understand that? I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm just saying we're human beings. That's just how it happens. If you get two people together, if they agree for more than five minutes, congratulations. That's amazing. That's just how it is. So it, we struggle to keep that kind of unity among ourselves just doing that. And, and our motives are all mixed up. I mean, I'm talking about from myself down to the smallest child in this congregation. Our motives are all mixed up and messed up. And that's exactly where Gideon is in this story. You've got a man who has a mission. God has told him, your mission is going to be successful. You cannot fail at this mission. In fact, all you've got to do is stand there and let me do the work. You just have to be willing to go about it. 
And I believe there's a lot here in this story that is instructive to us. And as you listen to this story, please, please go with me and try to think about it in light of, through the lens of your McConnell Road Baptist Church as a a congregation, a corporate body of believers who I believe love one another and love the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, your faith's just not as strong as it could be. Listen to Gideon with that in mind, would you? Let's go to verse 33. Now, God has already called Gideon to a fight. And it looks like the Midianites and their allies, the Amalekites, are ready too. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. They're ready to go. They're lined up. This enemy is probably is as big, or at least it looked as big as it ever has been in the history of this occupation that they're seeing right now. Over in chapter 7 and verse 12, we'll see that there actually is referred to as a valley of grasshoppers. That's how it's described. Could you imagine looking out and seeing these people? And what I imagine, based on that description, it's just like it's just a valley of people squirming with people. Just lots of people. Just so many people, you can't even number them. Have you ever been to a big football stadium or something, and you kinda, you're sitting on one side, and you look out, and you just see that sea of people? That's the idea. It's bigger than that, of course, but, it, but that's the idea. It's just this sea of people that's there. Now, what you've got to understand is that the children of Israel, they are... They're anything but a big, unified group of people. In fact, they had just come, a few hundred years prior to this, they had just come into the, the land. God had assigned them different areas of the country. He said, I want you to be here, Benjamin. I want you to be here, uh, Iskar. I want you to be here, Asher. And he put them all over the country. He said, this is, your, this is your land. And they pretty much just went in their corner and sat down, did what they wanted to do. In fact, didn't even do what God told them to do. In fact, you go over a few chapters and you'll see where it told every tribe did not take these people out, did not take these people out, did not take these people out. All they did was literally just sat in the land and said, okay, thank you, Lord. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And they are, throughout the book of Judges, in fact, all the way to the end, there's even a civil war at the end of this book where they about tear each other up because they're not unified is my whole point in telling you that they're not unified, they're not together in any way. So the tribes individually are small And together they are disjointed, but God says in chapter 6 of Judges, verse 16, as he's talking to Gideon, he says to him, he says, I'm going to have you strike the enemy, his words were, as one man, unified. You're going to be unified. It's going to be like there's one army, one man coming after these Midianites. So what happens in verse 34? You've got these, in verse 33, you've got the enemy lined up. They're ready to go. They look undefeatable. They look huge. They look overwhelming. But look in verse 34. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered unto him. Remember Abiezer, that's kind of his clan within Manasseh. He's part of Manasseh, the Manasseh tribe, but his little clan is called the Abiezer clan. That's his little group. And he says all those people came together there. But the emphasis I want to show you in this verse is in the first phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That phrase, came upon, it's, it's intended in the Hebrew particularly, it's intended to give a picture, almost like, this is my interpretation of it, so help me, if, you know, forgive me if it doesn't make 100%, 100% sense to you, but I think it will. It's almost as if Gideon is a glove, and the Lord is putting Gideon on. He is clothed with Gideon. Meaning, here's Gideon, 
he is completely he is completely possessed by the Holy Spirit. Here's Gideon, not no longer being Gideon, doing what Gideon wants to do. It says there that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He now is become an extension of the hand of God. That's the intention of the language there. Here's Gideon, who now is going to be doing exactly what the Spirit wants him to do. Now what happens when he does that? It says he blows a horn there, which is just a, a call to arms, and he tells everybody, oh, it's time to get for us to get together. And of course his family comes together, the Abiezer clan. You might think on the surface that's not a big deal, but do you remember what's happening like three verses prior to this? They want to string the boy up in the town square. They say, man, let's find him and let's kill him because he tore down the Baal, uh, the Baal uh, altar. Uh, we want to kill this guy. Now they're coming together. They're ready to fight. Not Gideon. They're ready to fight the bad guys. They're ready to do this. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. It's not Gideon that got him together. Gideon is not a man who can get anything done, but the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and he is able to make this happen. In fact, now, in the next verse, go to the next verse, verse 35. That Spirit of the Lord is still on him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh. That's the whole tribe of Manasseh who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun and unto Naphtali. And they came up to meet him. So now you've got these people that are all, all these, these three tribes that are coming together. And again, that on its own may not seem all that exciting to you. You may say, well, of course they're going to come together. If we had somebody attacking us in this neighborhood, we could call people up and we'd all get together. Eh, maybe, maybe not, but, but what's amazing about this is the last time Israel had a, an opponent or an enemy in the land, just a few chapters prior to this, when they got that opponent, that enemy in the land, a man named Barak, not Obama, but the uh, other Barak in the Old Testament. That is, Barack Obama was his name, right? Y'all act like y'all know who Y'all ain't listening to me. I can just tell. When I'm talking about Barack Obama and y'all ain't making a, eating crack and a smile, Come on now. Am I that bad now, y'all? Come on, get with me now. Get with me. All right, but there is a man named Barak in the Bible. His name is Barak, and he's one of the judges of Israel. He calls people together for, an, for a fight. He's only able to get Naphtali and Zebulon. This is back in uh, chapter 4 and verse 10. And you know how many people he gets together? 10,000 people. Pretty good-sized army. But you're going to find, if you were to go to chapter 7 and verse 3, just over a few pages there, you would find that the army that Gideon brings together is 32,000 people. So why am I telling you that? Because when God takes over a man, and that man is completely surrendered to God, and that's exactly what we see with Gideon. When God takes over a man, you know what happens? Unity happens. Strength happens. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4 and it's talking about the church there and it's talking about the unity of the church you know what that unity is it's not unity that I come up with it's not unity that y'all come up with you know where that unity comes from the unity of the spirit he's the one that lets us like each other and work together and love each other people who would be natural enemies the Holy Spirit comes in and says you're gonna love that man you're gonna love that woman you're gonna care for them you're gonna help them that's what the Holy Spirit does. Can I just go ahead and give you this little application? When we don't have unity, when there's disunity in our church, when we don't have the strength that we need, when we're missing something, and you might know it, and I might know it, when we know there's something missing, you know what that is? It's not because you're not doing good things. You know what's wrong? We are missing surrender to the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one that's got to work. He's the one that's got to do this. I think too many of us are working too hard in our own strength. Vance Havner puts it this way. We're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. You want to make a difference in this world? You want this community to be different? You get two or three of y'all that go ahead and say, Lord, just take me over and do whatever you want to with me. You get two or three of y'all actually doing that? You better believe this world will notice. They're not going to like you. They're not going to be your best friends. There's going to be some that you thought were your friends that might turn away from you. But if you will do that, there will be a difference because what the Holy Spirit does is he brings real unity with his people and he gives real strength to accomplish things for the Lord. We want to see God work, we're going to have to start trusting him a little bit more. We want to see God save souls. We want him to see him make this place a place of real influence in our community. We want to see this place be where when people come here, their marriages get together. Marriages that are about to fall apart, they come together. We want to see places where our children are protected from the evils of this world and the, and the evils of evil intended people. We want to see that happen. That's only going to happen, not because we have good intentions, because we all got good intentions. I can't imagine anybody in this room have a bad intention for any of that. But my good intentions and your good intentions put together won't mean diddly squat. We need the Holy Spirit to come in and take us over. We need to allow him to wear us like a glove so that we become an extension of the hand of God. When we do that, then amazing things can happen. We'll be united, we will be strong, and we will do what God has intended us to do. God powerfully equips us. He absolutely will. What he has asked us to do, he is going to equip us to do exactly that. Now, you would think at this point in the story that Gideon says, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. God's working. He's bringing 32,000 people together that wouldn't even look at each other before, and they're ready to fight on the same side. How amazing is that? You'd think he'd be ready to, hey, Lord, now where are we going to go? They're down in Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel. Do we need to go down there and, and meet them head on? Do we need to do it about, what's the, what's the move, Lord? That'd be, my, that'd be my thinking. That's what you think he's going to do. But it seems like he's doubting God at this point. Go, go, go with me to verse 36. Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, now your, 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 your Bible probably has a comma there and goes in the next verse, but let's just stop. Does he sound like somebody who's ready to, ready to go? Does he sound like somebody who's ready to take on the enemy? He's got 32,000 fellows behind him, but he's saying, now God, if you're going to do this, I got some stuff for you. Now, can I just ask you, don't raise your hand, don't say amen. But have you ever done that? I can tell you I've done that. The Lord has laid out everything for me and I'm looking and I say there's no other explanation than God himself is doing it and I'm going to sit there and say now Lord I don't want to be too hasty on this thing let's just make sure we've got your mind on this thing and God's sitting there saying you mean all this other stuff I've done is not enough well look at what Gideon asked for verse 37 behold I will put a fleece of wool in the floor as if and, and if the dew be on the fleece only and it be dry on all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou, shalt, thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. He said, now God, I, I, need, I need a sign. 
Now, don't forget that God had already given him a sign. Chapter 6 and verse 17, he comes into him as an angel, and he asks the angel, could you give me a sign? And he brings out that food to him, and then boom, out of heaven, there's fire that burns up that food. That feels like a sign. I don't know about you, but that feels like a sign. Yet here's Gideon saying, ah, I got one more. Can we do another one? And here's what he says. I want to take this fleece, this wool, and I want to put it on the floor. And it's, uh, understand it's a threshing, a threshing floor, so it's sort of a, kind of a barn, if you want to think about it in, those sense, that, in that sense. And it's, so it's an in, sort of covered space, but it's exposed to the elements, if you could imagine that. So he says, I want to put this fleece on the floor, and when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be wet with dew, but everywhere around it dry on the floor so he's asking for a pretty unusual sign I mean I, there's no reason for this other than just helping him give a little explanation that God's on his side so he says if you if you're gonna do that I'll believe you so verse 38 and it was so and he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wring the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water God patiently gives him assurance he says okay Gideon here you go Here's your sign. <laughs> Here's your sign. Yes, here you go. And not only does he give him a sign, but he gives him more than enough. That, that fleece, it says, it's full of water. All, all if you look right to looking at what Gideon asked for, all he wants is to make sure it's a little damp and everything else is dry. But God gave him enough water in it, so he's actually wringing water out and getting a bowl full of water. God's given him more than enough information. But still not enough for Gideon. What does a Gideon do? He says in verse 39, let not thine anger be hot against me. <laughs> he says, God, don't, don't kill me. I just need one more sign. God, I, I, know, I know I'm pushing it, Lord. In fact, he says there, he says, I, 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 and I will speak but this once, just one more time, but let me prove, I pray thee, let this once with the fleece. And now what he's asking for is kind of the opposite. Same, same idea, you got the fleece of wool, I want to put it in the floor, but now I want everything around it to be wet and I want the fleece to be dry. Now, he recognizes he push, he's pushing it, but God is, continues to be patient with him. I, can I just stop real quick and say, I'm so glad that God is patient with me. I, I can look back and I can tell you many times, and I act like I'm looking back many years from now, many years ago. This has been real recently. I can look back real recently and see that God has been patient with me as I'm stumbling through the dark trying to figure things out. I want to make sure that I'm very clear when we talk about Gideon here. Gideon is not a good example to follow in this. You're trying to make a decision. I know we use it, and I understand why we say it. I understand the intent of it. But let me tell you, if you're putting a fleece out, and you're doing that in the, in the way that Gideon is talking about, can I just go ahead and tell you, based on the Word of God, that is actually a sinful act? What Gideon was doing was a sinful act. The reason I say that is actually back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. I won't make you turn there, but it's the passage that Jesus quotes when he is tempted by the devil. Remember, the devil's got him up there, and he says, you just jump off of here, and the Lord will catch you. And the, Jesus quotes back to him, do not tempt the Lord your God. Because in Deuteronomy, it's, there's, a, there's a prohibition against testing the Lord, tempting the Lord, pushing your luck with the Lord, and said, if the Lord has made it clear to you, you know what we're supposed to do? We're just supposed to obey Him. We're not supposed to be pushing back and asking Him for this. Testing God is actually against God's law. 
But that makes this even more wonderful from God's perspective because God is so patient and so loving and so kind with us in spite of the fact that I do test God on a daily basis. I push back and say, Lord, I would not, I'm not using this language all the time, but essentially I'm saying, Lord, I've got this fleece I'm going to put out. Could you, could you get it wet for me? Oh, that's not, could you keep it dry for me? I, I'm trying all these little things. I want to see a sign. God is patient, he's loving, and he's kind. The way, the way that one person put it is that God in this story, and I think this is true throughout all of human history, God is more interested in taking care of us than we are in being taken care of. <laughs> he knows what's best for us even when we don't. When I, when I was a little kid, it would, I would have loved it if somebody had given me a, a gun that I didn't know how to do anything with. I'd probably blowed my head off if I was a little bitty and didn't have anybody showing it to me. I, 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 I was, if I was a, a, a young'un, I'd like to have, well, good gracious, I'm a grown man, and I like to eat as much ice cream as I can put in my mouth. But I need somebody to come around and say, Matthew, you don't need that. Do you understand? Sometimes we want what we want to our detriment. But God, he wants what's best for us. We're like little children going after what we think we want, what our, what our guts want, what our stomachs want, what our heart, perverse and twisted as our hearts are, what we want. And God's up in heaven saying, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I've got something better for you than that. So no. And if, we were, if he were to give us what we deserved every time that we broke his law, every time that we push back against him every time. You know what? We'd be a bunch of piles of ash around here. We would, because that's what we deserve. But God is so patient, and he is so kind. He is good. He is absolutely good. So let me just go ahead and remind you, you can trust him. He is so good that you can trust him. Did y'all know that God doesn't want to hurt you? Not only does he not want to hurt you, he knows better than to do anything that would hurt you. If anything, you're the one that you need to be saved from. <laughs> I think sometimes I think, like, God, you'll just let me take over the controls. I got this from here. And God's saying, no, no, you're going to run it into a mountain somewhere. I got this. You just do what I tell you to do and you'll be okay. We can trust God because he is a good God. He is a powerful God and he continues to be patient. God, not only when he's going to, he's got a mission for us. He's got a mission for Gideon and God is going to equip us for that mission. But he's also going to patiently and gently communicate with us. I believe over these 75 years that this church has been in existence. That from the beginning, God had a purpose for this church. God has worked through the people in this church, through the, the, the pastors and the lay leaders and the deacons and all the men and women of this church. He has used these people. But you better believe, and some of you that have been around can probably tell some of the stories. I don't know the stories, so I'm not telling from, from, from knowledge. I just know this is how churches work. You better believe there's been a time or two where we got a little off the rails, got a little off the, the right path. And you know what the Lord didn't do? All right, shut them down, get it over, it's done. Close it down, not going to do that anymore. No, it's not what he did. You know what he did? He gently got us back in the right place where we're supposed to be. Can I, can I tell you, we're not going to be the last time. We're going to run way off the road one of these times. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to pull us back. He's going to get us back. He's going to get us back. Because you know why? Because he loves us. 
He's patient with us. The mission he's put us on is going to be a success no matter what, but he's trying to get us to get on board. And sometimes we go way off in the right and the left and go all over the place, and he says, no, y'all come on, y'all come on. He's like a good shepherd. Get those sheep and corrals us in the right direction. Of course, now at this point, again, you think, well, now the battle's, now the battle's got to be on. Now the battle's ready to go. We got Gideon, he's finally on board. He's happy because God gave him the right moisture on the fleece or whatever, <laughs> that strange thing that he asked for. So he should be ready to go. Well, he is. Gideon is. But I want you to see this in chapter 7, verse 1. Who are we introduced to here? A man named Jerubabel. It tells us that that's the name of Gideon. I don't think that's an accident that his name is mentioned there as Jerubel. I don't think that's by accident. Do y'all remember where he got that name from? Not too long ago, a few verses back, he, at God's direction, tore down the altar of Baal. And his daddy came out to defend him. And his daddy said... He's the one that contends with Baal. So I'm going to give him this name, Jerub Baal, the one who is contending with Baal. That's his intention of the name. But what we've got now is we've got now a superstar, mega, mega, mega hero out front, this, this superhero out front that is ready to take on the Midianites because he's the one who contends with Baal. And I believe he kind of led with that name, don't you think? That's my opinion. It doesn't tell me that, but I kind of think he did. Hey, I'm the guy that took down the altar of Baal and didn't flinch. You better believe we're ready to take on you 32,000. Let's go after me. I got the 32,000 here. If you go to verse 3, you see there that you'll see that there's some that leave, but you add up the 22 that leave and the 10 that remain, you've got 32,000 under there. And God says in verse 2, I want you to see this in verse 2, God said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give to the, give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. I think God at this point says, Yep, you're in the right place, but I think you're depending on the wrong things. You're, you're depending on numbers. I believe by the reference of his name of Jerubbabel, I believe that we're seeing a man who's probably leaning on his own accomplishments. I can tell you, again, I've done that before myself. Lord, look at what I have done. I can do it again. You can't do nothing. You didn't do it the first time. But God's got to remind him. He's got to humble him a little bit. He says, I've got 32,000 people. That's enough. We can do this. Lord, with you, with you and 32,000 people, we can accomplish everything. And God says, no, because you're going to do 32,000 people, and you're going to think that's why we won. You've got to understand that God has a purpose here. Don't forget, why are they in bondage? They're in bondage because they went after false gods. This is in chapter 6 and verse 16. There's a prophet that comes to them, you remember this? Where he says, y'all are in bondage because you went after false idols. And God says, <clears throat> I'm going to deliver you from those false idols. And God's not going to allow any other explanation. Because how foolish would it be for God to allow them to be delivered by this man that they have put up on a pedestal and to say, wow, look at how wonderful of a, of a leader he is. And then they start worshiping Gideon, Jerubbabel, the one who contends against Baal. How foolish would that be? 
And God says, no, no, I'm not going to let you look at a leader. I'm not going to let you look at 32,000 people. I'm going to do it my way. So what God does is he whittles that list down. Y'all probably know the end of this story. Ultimately, he's going to be left with 300 people. From 32,000 down to 300. How does he do it? Does it in two waves. The first wave in verse uh, 3, he says there that whoever is fearful. This is actually a provision he puts in the law in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20 and verse 8. He says, when people go into battle, if anybody's scared to go into battle, you go in and let them go home. It is an acceptable exception. What he didn't want people doing was running on the battlefield. He'd rather you run before you got on the battlefield, because that's sort of infectious on the battlefield, if you can imagine. But he says, you can go home. And when he tells them that, a whole bunch of them go home. 32,000 comes in, turns into 10,000. Then the next thing, he's got this unusual uh, request for them, and, and there's people who try to spiritualize the reasons for this, and I think it's just God saying, I'm just going to see if I can't get rid of a bunch of them, and let's try two different things, and he, of course he knows how it's going to turn out. I think he just sort of arbitrarily picks this test. That's my opinion. You can take it and disagree with it, and that's fine. But I think it's an arbitrary discussion. I think that's how he does it. He just wants to, to whittle them down. But he says, he says, Gideon, I want you to take those 10,000 men, I want you all to go down to this, this body of water, and I want you to get them to get something to drink. And he says, there's some people there. Uh, let's actually look there where it says, um, so we'll make sure I tell you how they, they say it there. In verse 5, he talks about, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. So he says, there's these people who are going to lap like a dog. Uh, best explanation, I don't think, I may be wrong about this. I wasn't there, and we just have what the Bible tells us. I don't think they were getting down, like, you know how your dog does, gets there and put his face in the water, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's what was going on. I think the, in, the intention here is that they were using their hands and bringing it up to their mouth. That's what they were doing. That's, that's the best explanation. It makes the most sense to me that that's what they were doing. But these people, as they were doing it, were probably standing on their feet, putting their hands down and bringing it to their mouth versus laying prostrate on the ground. The other group of people were getting on their knees. They were getting on their knees, and they were, as he says there, let's see if I can find it really quickly, uh, verse 6, um, and the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. So you got these people who are on their knees drinking this water. Now again, why he picked one group over the other, other than just simply one group was bigger than the other, I don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't really give us an explanation of this. But ultimately, God says, I want you to let the kneelers go. Those that get on their knees, you let them go. Those that laugh like a dog, I want you to keep those people. And what, he's in the, what he ends up with is 300 people. I think the thing I want to draw your attention to before I go on from here, do you all remember how many times Gideon gave arbitrary tests to God? Two times. Fleece, fleece. I don't think, I, again, I'm just putting my own opinion in here, so y'all take this for what you think. But I think God might have had some poetic justice. He said, you test me twice, I'm going to test you twice. I can imagine, I'm Gideon, I got 32,000 people, I'm feeling pretty strong. I'm feeling, yeah, this is good, I can do this. And God says, now you have to do something here, I want to do a test, and then you just watch 22,000 of them walk away. Lord, can we do this? Okay. You know what you're doing. I'm going to trust you. And then he says, I want you to send everybody that bowed down when they drink water, send them home. You only get 300 people? What am I going to do with this? I could, that's how I'd feel. I imagine he might have felt something similar. 
I, I believe that the God might have God might have been just trying to cut Gideon a little bit down to size is what he was doing. And now you think, now can we go? We're ready to fight, right? You've got your 300 people. Well, there's one more thing that happens here in verse 9. This will be the last thing. Excuse me. Yeah, in the last in verse, um, yeah, verse 9. God says, okay, arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered into thine hands. God says it's time. But he knows that Gideon's probably still on the fence. Look at verse 10. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Furah, thy servant, down to the host. He says, now, it's time for you to go. This is God talking. I've got, I've got my army together. You're ready to go. Let's do this thing. But if you have any reservations, I want you to do one more thing. You can do this if you want to, only if you're afraid. Of course, Gideon doesn't even talk about it. He just goes. He's afraid. He grabs this, this fellow who's his assistant, probably his, his armor, weapons bearer, but he brings him with him. And they go down there, they go down into the camp, and they're just sitting on the outside, outskirts of the camp, probably hiding in the shadows, and they overhear a conversation. And the conversation was, actually, let's go and look at it here, I think it's in verse 13. In verse 13, the conversation is, that the one man says to another, he says, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian, and came into the tent, and smote it, and it fell and overturned, and that tent lay along. So he says, I got this weird dream about this big loaf of bread coming into our camp. But then here's what I want you to pay attention. This is not the dream. But look at what's verse 14. His fellow answered him. The guy that just heard the dream says back to him, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and to all the hosts. Here is the enemy. These are the Midianites talking. The one guy said, man, I just had a weird dream. You would just think they're pagans. What would they say? Well, man, you must have ate something weird before you went to bed dreaming that kind of foolishness. But no, what does he say? No, I know what this is. This is this man named Gideon, and God has sent him to take us over. And who's there to hear it? God allowed Gideon to sit there and listen to the whole thing the entire time. I just want you all to know that God's already got this whole thing laid out. He's got it all figured out. He, he's, he's already, in this case, he's got a man... He's put a dream into a dude's head. He put a thought into another guy's head and for allow them to be together having that conversation at the exact moment that Gideon's sitting outside of the camp. What are the odds? The odds are that God orchestrated every bit of that. And I want you to understand that God's, he knows what we're about to walk into. He knows how we're going to obey him. He knows whether we're going to try to find some more excuses like Gideon to try to keep kicking the can down the road. Well, I'll figure it out later. I'll do that later. I'll do it when this happens, God, when that happens. He knows all of those. But let me just go ahead and tell you this. God has more answers than you have questions. You're going to have questions, and we got them, don't we? I've got all kinds, and most of them are excuses, but I've got all kinds of questions. But you know that every question I've ever asked if I was honest and I was listening and I was not trying to act like I... <laughs> Y'all have done this before. You ask a question, you don't want to hear the answer. You're just trying to make a point. You're, I'm talking about in an argument. I'm talking about with God. I'm talking about with an argument with somebody. You, you've done this before. You're not, you're not asking a question. You're trying to make a point. You don't care what they say back. We, do, we treat God that way sometimes. We're just asking a question, just trying to say, Lord, you know, I'm just, I don't really want to do what you want me to do. 
But if we'll actually ask God a question and actually listen for his answer, he's got more answers than you'll ever have questions in your entire life. He's got an answer for everything. He's got it all figured out. He's got it all planned out. And as we move forward as this church, as individuals, as families, as a community of believers, I can just tell you right now there's no question about how this thing's going to end up. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, as Amos says. I'm none of those things, but I can tell you exactly how this thing's going to end up. God wins. He always wins. Twice on Sundays. He always wins. He always wins. Sure, he's going to have to teach us some lessons along the way. Sure, he's going to have to, we're going to have to endure some hardship, but he loves us absolutely dearly. And my faith's not strong enough. Your faith's not strong enough. But God's strong enough to take it. Your ideas aren't that good. My ideas are not that good. But God's strong enough to do it anyway. In fact, if anything, we're delaying our own victory. Do you, I, just, I don't know how, I know it all works in God's plan, but if you could just think about it from a human perspective for a minute, why didn't Gideon just get right to the fight? He's got 32,000 men behind him. Just go. Quit asking for the, the wool to be wet and dry and all that. Just go. Could you imagine what could have been done? How much suffering could have been avoided? Could you imagine from our perspective, if we'll just do what God asks us to do, just go and be the church that God has asked us to be? Could you imagine what kind of heartaches that we might avoid? What kind of suffering? How many people might be helped? How many people we might actually come in contact that would change our lives? Could you imagine? But what we're doing. Lord, I don't have enough faith. <laughs> Lord, I don't know what. You've got to give me a sign. But you forget that God is the quiet, the unseen, the eternal, the orchestrator of everything, and we just need to trust him. I I'm done, but let me just give you this one thought. I was talking to Brother Randy Bain when he was here. We went to dinner a couple of times, and one of the conversations we had, he was talking about, some of y'all know Kenneth Cates, was a missionary down in Brazil. Um, some of y'all know him. Of course, here at this church, you've heard stories about Paul Ferguson. Um, I, I've even heard some stories about uh, Brother J.T. Ellis, and you can know other men that are that other and women that you know or that are maybe just names you've heard of. But I can tell you that every one of those cases, those three that I just mentioned, Ferguson, Ellis, and Cates, in those three cases, there's something that marked their lives. I didn't know them personally, so I'm not saying this for my own person. I'm just telling you every story you ever hear about them. You know what you hear about them? They prayed like crazy. I mean, just like all the time. They spent ridiculous amounts of time in prayer. And then when they prayed, the Holy Spirit got a hold of them and did something amazing through them. In all three of those cases, two of which are directly connected to this church, one is connected to this area, and you know that in all three of those cases, these are people that were like you and me. They're just regular people. There was no offense to any of them, but there was nothing special about them. They weren't smarter than anybody else, better looking, it, it, nothing, had more money, none of those things. They were regular folk, but they spent time in the prayer, and the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. And y'all are sitting here, at least directly related to one of those, Brother Ellis. I mean, the reason this church exists, of course, we know it was God, but he worked through that man to have this church even established. Do you know why? Because he prayed. <laughs> And he trusted God, and he did what God told him to do. And again, y'all can name other names of people like that through history. I'm just telling you, that's, as we talk, got talking about that, that is a mark of what makes men and women 
be something for the, or the glory of God. We spend some time in prayer, a lot of time in prayer, not just like, let me pray over my meal kind of stuff. We're talking about we talk to the Lord. And when he come, when we talk to the Lord like that, it, it, you can't help but the Holy Spirit coming on, coming on you. And when the Holy Spirit comes on, you're going to be able to do some things you'll never imagine. And I could just, I'm, I, I want to begin praying that at least two or three of y'all get a hold of that. Because if two or three of y'all get a hold of that, this, this community will not be the same ever again. It will never be the same. And if there's more than that, get a hold of it. Oh my goodness, you better bar the door. The Lord knows what's going to happen. But would you pray with me to that end? Thank you for joining us for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Pastor Matthew Tilley, and I'm so glad you joined us here. But if you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org.